Thank you, Kirsten. And uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the ATAR Cloud and Coffee discussion on all things modernization and transformation. My name is Chris Oglesby uh, with MorphWorks, and uh, absent again today is my dynamic co-host, Bill Hunt. Uh, for those of you that weren't able to join our last one, Bill's taken on a uh, new role recently with uh, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, and uh, waiting for his clearance. Uh, before the introduction, uh, I'd like to uh, explain that this platform is hosted under the ATAR cloud and infrastructure pillar uh, with the goal of bringing lessons learned and ideas to the ATAR community. Our focus will be a conversation about our guests' experiences, past and present, uh, executing modernization and transformation efforts. Uh, again, as Kirsten mentioned, there's a Q&A button at the bottom of uh, the, uh, the chat window. Uh, please feel free to enter in questions and uh, we'll work through the questions into our discussion. So uh, now let's move to introductions. Uh, today's uh, guest is uh, Robin Reese with uh, the Department of Interior and has taken her IT management background to uh, workforce transformation. Robin, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Sure, thanks so much for having me here, Chris. I will um, give Bill a mulligan for not being here. <laughs> and we'll just make up for his, his missing personality through really wonderful conversation. Um, like Chris said, my name is Robin Reese. I work at the Department of the Interior in the Office of Human Capital, and I'm, uh, I'm a purpose-driven worker, meaning uh, I take my strengths and I put them where I want to influence most. And in this case, I want to influence what I call an ever-ready workforce. And I think we can do that by bringing advanced technology, um, including all the capabilities that cloud offers, to the space of workforce and work and learning and development data so that we can enable an ecosystem to always have us ready to meet the missions. And so while I'm in the Office of Human Capital, my background is information technology management. I started in the private sector for a small business working contracts for DOD. Um, and then I moved into CPIC functions uh, at the National Science Foundation, uh, where I then did IT governance and strategy and met some really great IT leaders in the space. Um, and then I jumped over to DOI just a few years ago to start bringing transparency to jobs data. So I appreciate you having me here. No, this is great. And uh, so I'm going to hit you with, with uh, the, the, one of the first questions, and it's one that I think you and I share um just the aspect of it whether or not the terminology uh, fits with uh uh you know with the, the new cultures that are that are out there but um you know one of the things that, uh, that you talked about in kind of transformation and learning um and and i think again we had we had a long conversation about this is uh kind of the term around uh, fail fast fail cheap um and would uh, would love to kind of dive into how you know, that kind of builds on, you know, uh, what we should be thinking about, what organizations should be doing um, around kind of the transformation and, and workforce uh, uh, productivity. Yeah, um, fail fast and fail cheap. So the, the, my memory first comes to this. I was at GSA when the director of GSA uh, coined the phrase fail fast, fail forward. And that was difficult. Um, I was a contractor at the time and contractors don't fail. We deliver. <laughs> how we make our money um, and we don't deliver something partly done we deliver the perfect product um, and that's uh, in part uh, because we're expected to right but also because we attract people to those roles who are achievers and who want to get A's on everything right and so we deliver perfect products 
And so that was that was a little difficult, I would say, a fail fast, fail forward, because the word fail is in there. And I think, Chris, you said that you've heard this from some of the people, um, and, and especially in the younger generations, that worry for you. None of us want to fail, right? Um, but I think that uh, when, you when you start changing that lexicon a little bit and you say fail fast, fail cheap, what you're saying is learn something. Uh, you know, try something and learn something, but do it small so that you don't make a huge mistake, right? Make little mistakes. Um, and again, there's the word mistakes. So what I've started doing recently is my son was trying out for a travel baseball team and he was really excited about it. But then the morning before he left, he said, mom, what if I fail? And I said, well, I don't think you can fail, but I think you can learn something about yourself. When, when you're there. And then let's see what happens afterwards. Um, and so I am shying away from using the word fail because failure is heavy, right? But I think that what we're getting to in the culture of our work and what um, in the federal government at least is easier for us to accept is this ability to try things at a smaller scale, learn from them and then keep moving. And um, the technologies that we have today are so new and rapidly evolving that we kind of have to, right? Almost everything we do is R&D when we talk about technology now. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting uh, using, using kids sports as an analogy, having coached a lot. Um, we would have, uh, for, for kids that I coached, I would have sessions of, uh, you know, go out and show me what you can do, right? It, rather mm -hmm. than uh, what in, you know in the in the hockey vernacular that I've used, it's like it's a, a culture of cone skating, which is okay. I need you to skate to that cone, turn left, skate to that cone, turn right, skate to that cone, and then do it backwards, right? And and so you, your kind of you know mentality is to, to to head that way. So learning is definitely one thing, but you know one of the one of the comments made to me, and I think one of the the, the things that I like to use is is giving people creative latitude. So mm -hmm. is that something that you use, especially as we look at, you know, kind of the IT world and especially the development world? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that in my experience, because I've, I've watched this from the IT management perspective, I've also participated in it as, a, as an innovator myself. Um, where we don't really know the answers. And this is different than the way we used to build and, and operate and manage IT systems, right? And, and the environment we work in is also different. So when we used to execute these projects, we sort of, we, we knew the outcomes, we knew the 10 steps to get there, we knew how much it was gonna cost to get there and we were driving that schedule. Right. And if we wanted to change an element of it, then all the other things flexed around that one element. And so there you have your traditional project management. And then we get into the space where we're trying to do things um, more creatively, trying to stimulate that that uh, creativity, but also trying to just add speed uh, to what we're doing. And that requires us to do things in smaller bits. Enter agile. Right. right. And smaller bits. Um, uh, uh, you know, in some ways works, in some ways have unintended consequences, which we can talk about later. Um, but you have to, you have to give up some element of certainty when you're working in those smaller bits because you don't really know the end, every step that's going to take to get there, but you know what outcome you're driving towards. And I think that in my experience was difficult for the doers, the achievers, 
to get to that space where they're working in smaller increments, maybe with not as much definition as they liked to have going into the whole thing. But it was also equally or more difficult for the leaders, the investors, the people who gave their money to do those projects to not really uh, have that much certainty. And so there's absolutely a need for leadership to make a safe space for creativity and innovative thinking and for learning um, and learning cheap. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's easier as leaders to endorse that kind of uh, rapid learning, rapid prototyping when you know the dollar amount is a decimal point, not a big, not a big dollar. Yeah, and I, but I also think that uh, the the smaller uh, the, the smaller increments, the the, the smaller um, achievements, the, the smaller win can be celebrated, right? That that okay, oh, hey, yeah. look at this, right? But at the same time, I'd be kind of curious, especially from your your old you know CPEG and IT governance, because that's some of what we do is is kind of that you know the the transformation, the the, the move to something different, right? You've got that change aspect, which we'll, we'll definitely get because we get to it on every. <laughs> Every show as you're you're familiar with, but um, you know the the keeping keeping that that strategy and that focus um, in in check as as you do have that right because I, I agree I think everybody just wants to go um, you know and to use the my old uh, marine friend uh, analogy take the take the hill so to speak but mm -hmm. how do you you know how do you kind of balance you know balance that right you got to because you got to keep that you know keep those balanced um, and celebrating the win but still need to keep going yeah this is a great conversation um, a mentor back when i was on the um uh, industry side who would remind us is that the hill you want to die on right so <laughs> strategic right we couldn't just pick a hill to fight for we had to be strategic otherwise that could be the one we die on and um, and that really resonated with me as a daughter of a former Navy SEAL. I was like, no, actually, I don't. Um, so let's talk about this a little bit more. But I think that um, one of the things that I've been reflecting on quite a lot is as leaders, we have to be careful about how we say go, right? Um, because we want to get people to action and we want to get them moving because everybody needs to do their piece in order to get to this larger outcome. But in order to do that in a way that really nets the benefit intended, we have to do, we have to know where we're going. So we have to clearly articulate that vision and let people find their puzzle piece in filling in the whole picture um, so that when the puzzle's done, it creates something, right? right? I think that when I think about cloud, right, I remember I was, um, I was industry when when cloud first started becoming a thing. And I remember saying to my program manager, who was my mentor at the time, like, isn't that just somebody else's data center? Like, what? Are, it's not ethereal. It doesn't, it's not like it, it doesn't exist. There's something somewhere that exists, but it was kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around. And I'm here working in a data center in an infrastructure environment with systems integrators. And we're talking about the cloud, right? And, and I think that um, when I look back over that, that portion of my career, and I'm a dot connector, by the way, I like to believe that things are intended to connect and that they're for a purpose. We just don't all know the, the full story yet. But when you look back over the maturation of, of where we've been in federal IT modernization, and we think about you know when, when GSA first came out or OMB first came out with the cloud first strategy um, over a decade ago, um, 
when we're telling our organizations, our IT organizations cloud first, right? We're incentivizing them to go to the cloud. Now we have to do that smartly, which came later. Um, but at that time, if you're hearing cloud first and you're investing in cloud first and you're not really sure what the, out, the vision, the outcome is, then you're going to cloud. We all have heard stories about what happened with going to cloud and it wasn't maybe the best thing to do. Um, and so then as I, as I reflect back on my time, you know, there was cloud first, then there was the fiscal year 14 cut and reinvest strategy that was like, hey, we know things cost money, find a way to pay for it, <laughs> right? right. Um, in my opinion, that, that kind of cut and reinvest strategy stimulates that creativity. And then you do have to do things in smaller chunks and learn, learn fast. Um, uh, but, but in my current work today, Chris, when I think about what I need to do in order to make sure we're effective, not just today, but in the future, I personally think we need to think data first. And so this is where as leaders, when we say go, as, uh, as when we create a policy or, or say do this thing, um, we can expect our people to do that thing, right? Uh, with, with zest, <laughs> with zeal, right? Um, but if, we, if what we want is for them to do this strategic coordinated thing, then we have to say, hey, by the way, what we really wanna do is think, uh, data first cloud smart right and and so this is this is my new my new uh message to the world there are a lot of reasons why when we maybe as organizations went to the cloud in the first place it wasn't as successful as we wanted in many cases that was because we weren't cloud ready right we weren't cloud ready because we didn't have our data ready we didn't have our data ready and the the spaghetti code around it was too hard to understand. So we couldn't just like go build fresh, you know, sort of thing. So if you look over the, the history of these policies from 2011 Cloud First to uh, 2017, the Open Government Data Act or the Foundations for Evidence-Based Decision Act to 2018 Cloud Smart, 2019 Federal Data Strategy, 2020, where are we, <laughs> right? right. In 2021, I think we're in this, data first approach to leveraging cloud so that we can continue to be dynamic as a workforce delivering against government missions. And so now there's, there's a, a nice uh, coordinated vision. <laughs> well, and so, so I think, you know, and I guess take, you know, step back to give the shameless plug since Bill's not here. Thank you for mentioning cloud smart for him. Um, he always appreciates that. There's always thumbs up. So I'll, I'll since he's not here today, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, but on the data side, you know, it's one of the things that we talk about a lot. And, and I love the fact that you, um, you've been focused on data, both from a workforce standpoint, as well as, as basically your IT, you know, management background. You know, it, we, we talk about it here as the understand, right? Learn and understand. But one of the things I want to, I want to dig in on a little bit is, is some of the vernacular, right? Because we do have these, this, this evolution, right? We lose, we lose the, you know, and, and again, being a, an old sales guy, you know, we lose that that um, vernacular that happens, right? So to your point about cloud, well, isn't that just somebody else's data center? I mean, I have experiences where we're in talking, um, you know, seat management, but it, you know, the the person's brain was on utility-based computing, which was exactly the same thing. It just had it had changed. Mm -hmm. That that was, and, and we spent two hours having the conversation. And because of the vernacular, couldn't tie the two. 
So as we look at you know what happens with the data, the understanding, and the reskilling, how do you make sure that you know that people have a good understanding before they do start kind of heading down a path? Because it changes a lot. First, smart, you know, data understanding. Where are we? Like those are all those are all pieces that that can confuse, uh, I, I guess, you know, people and organizations. I would say this is a this is a tough balance, Chris. Um, the understanding part comes to communication, 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 right? If we're transparent with where we think we're going and why this piece is the next thing we need to do in order to get there, then uh, the hope is that the people executing against it sort of understand the logic backbone that exists. And so they can they can execute on that. And we, we're always tracking to make sure that we're, we're moving towards the same place. The really difficult part of that for me and my experience is that I, I love talking about the vision, right? I mean, this is, this is where I thrive. The vision, connecting the dots, what could be someday. And some people just, uh, they get it, but it's not their thing. And so this ability to move from vision to value is something that I think we have to drive a balance to. So do I need everybody to understand every little thing? No. Do I need them to fully commit? No. Amazon, uh, uh, what is the, their tenant? It's um, disagree and commit, right? right. <laughs> it, just understand. We just need to understand and move forward. So I think that striking the balance between being transparent with the vision and having people really understand it and buy into it, and then also just getting them to execute something that delivers value is where we have to strike this balance. And I like to say that you know, I'm certainly not the expert, right? I'm, I'm not, I, do, I don't go build data centers, but I understand the language of information technology and I understand the language of acquisitions and the language of finance and the language now of human capital. And so I like to say that I took the Rosetta Stone um, in those languages. And it's really important as leaders to be able to translate that vision into value through those different languages. And so I think that, what that really gets to is just knowing your audience. Um, and, and, and now the way that IT is moving and impacting the world of work and the way we carry out our work, it's not just an IT conversation. It's a business conversation. It's a human capital conversation. It's a finance conversation. And if you don't talk about it all together, then you're definitely leaving something behind. And then you won't fail fast, fail cheap. Um, you'll fail big. Right, right. So um, now let's dig into the, the data because I, I think my understanding is you're, you're starting to use the data uh, to drive, um, you know, kind of the, the, the policy of meaning, right? Like you're really looking at how do we, how do we take that data? And, and I think you're using it in kind of the workforce area, right? So how do we take that data and actually use that to help people and organizations kind of continue to move forward, mm -hmm. transform and, and grow. I mean, you know, we're, as, as a company, we're very focused on what we call the three parts of you. It's very important to us on kind of those different aspects of those different elements of a, of an individual. Mm -hmm. and, and you're using data to, to really kind of dig into that for the individual as well as the organization. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, so the work that I'm doing is is around what I like to refer to the ever ready workforce, but I break it down in a simple equation, A plus B equals C. A in the equation contains all the data about me, 
my experiences, my skills, strengths, interests, things that I bring to the table from my non-federal work as well as federal work in today. The C side of the equation is um, a, a job, uh, information about work uh, today, in the future, generally when we look way, uh, way out there. And then in the middle, it's, it's all of the information and data that we need in order to connect the dots from A to C. So I've chosen a target and I want to get there. How do I close that gap? And that's where learning and development data comes in and experiential learning apprenticeships, things like that. Um, and so what I'm working on and chipping away at with this, um, this R&D approach is first, you know, cloud is the answer for me to getting a data-enabled architecture that can be shareable across federal agencies so that we can answer complex questions with different data sets, accessing the pieces of the data sets that we need. So for example, if I as the organization think that in 10 years, I'm gonna need a lot more people who can fly drones, right? I'd like to tell those people today that I'm gonna need them to learn how to use drone technology. Um, because my ability to meet the need or the demand for drone operators is much greater if I train people who already understand the mission and organization than if I expect them to pop up in the landscape 10 years from now and I just hire them brand new, right? Because then when I hire them brand new, there's a learning curve. Right. So, so this, is, this is simply a strategic way of making sure we continue to meet the missions, but we, we don't, we will not be able to rapidly uh, assess our need and assess our workforce in the gap towards that need and get them on the path to meeting that need without having the data right, right? And if we don't have the data right, we can't take advantage of the cloud and an artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities that can help us better analyze and understand that data and make decisions. And I'm not saying we're going to know the absolute endpoint. But we can look forward and say, in, in all of these possible scenarios, digital acumen, data literacy, um, a, a culture of teamwork and cross-functional capabilities is going to be absolutely needed. Let's train our workforce on that so that they can slot into these various places. So there's as much a technical and data element to enabling this kind of thing as there is a cultural element of just teaching our people to look toward the future. And I'd, I'd like to give an example that Dorothy Aronson, the CIO at NSF, um, would, would say to me often, it was hard to swallow. She said, listen, you've got to get a B on today because we won't get an A tomorrow if we're trying to get the A plus today. And I was like, Dorothy, I'm an A plus student. I can't get a B, <laughs> right? But in the end, the fact is that we cannot do it all perfectly. So we need leadership to say, here are the things that can get by while you focus on this, because we need to be able to get by tomorrow or we'll fail. Right. So how do you um, how do you use that data then to like so if, if you took if you took the the Robin or the Chris from you know from uh, our our past right and, mm -hmm. and sit them down, how, how do you kind of help help map that out? Do you use the data to help map that out for the individual as well. So I think that we can get there. We're definitely not there today, but I think there's enough granularity in data if we can um, architect our data to be understood at that level of granularity that we could say, hey, um, I can help you figure out what kinds of things really give you energy. I'm really big on if, if I'm doing work that sucks the energy out of me, I might be doing the wrong thing. 
right? But if I know what gives me energy and then I look at the types of work that need to be performed where that really meets my best strengths um, and I target those things then I could be more strategic and deliberate about the work that I go after. And maybe uh, that makes the, the younger Robin um, get to that space a little bit more quickly than I did. Because when I hit on the work that really gave me the most energy, it was obvious. Like it was so clear to me. And I think technology can help more of us get there. Fortunately, I had mentors and leaders and a variety of work experiences that helped me figure out what I really like to do. But not everybody um, has that opportunity. Right. Right? They have the ability to maybe do those things, but maybe not the opportunity. There are only so many mentors in the world. Right. Right. So how can we um, give more people access to that kind of opportunity to know themselves and to know something about work and to constantly be learning and growing um, by exposing that data in a smart, intelligent way? Um, so it's, that's really what I'm after. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's perfect. And, and, you know, I think that kind of then goes into current environment, right? Because current environments even as you said, not everybody has the opportunity or many people don't even uh, attempt, right? Because they may not have been, again, back to the cones caging, right? You haven't been taught, oh, go out here and get this mentor and try to learn from them, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's a lot of, well, let me just go in and, and, and do my job. And so I guess in, in today's world um, or that was kind of brought upon us in the past year, I know as a small business, uh, it was challenging for us, but creating that that same opportunity of connectedness, right? That that ability to 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 do what you're saying of, you know, okay, hey, here's here's things we need to do, and, and and a lot of times you can kind of pick that up in a meeting, right? Somebody all of a sudden had energy on, oh, we're going to migrate these systems to the cloud, and you see somebody's got passion, like okay, how do we harness that technical passion? may not be somebody that wants to be a leader, may not somebody that wants to step up, but they could be our, you know, kind of our, our technical tiger team, right? And, and so how do you, you know, how do you in this, in, you know, in this world of virtual, uh, you know, all virtual um, leverage that and manage that and be able to support uh, people's interests and passion? I love this question. <laughs> you would have thought we, we planned this, but this one, you know. <laughs> I love this question. I think we can so, talk for hours. You know, I recently, my husband said to me, do you remember when you used to hate teleworking? <laughs> you used to telework. You had the option and you went to the office anyway. And um, the, uh, life was different then. Um, and that was just a few years ago. <laughs> 2019 to be exact. Um, and the difference was culturally how we included people and shared information. And when part of why I think I've been able to be as successful as I have been, you know, relatively speaking for me, is because I made sure to be where the people were that were talking that could make decisions so that as they were making decisions, they I could influence to some degree, right? At least get um, my opinion in there and then know that I was able to make whatever impact I was able to make. And so that required me to be in the building, in the meeting rooms, um, not like 
somewhere else down the hall, not attending the meeting, just sitting behind my desk, but I had to really put myself out there and learn a lot and always be prepared to say something because that was the moment. And on the occasions when I did telework, because, you know, I have two young kids, there are sometimes I'm just like, you know, uh, had, to, had to have a day to focus. Um, the people in the building forgot I was teleworking because teleworking meant you're not working or you're not accessible. And so that, that inclusion factor, I think, was really difficult for people. Now, fast forward, COVID happens, we have to work from home. Now we're all in the same space where we have to use technology that's not new, <laughs> but right. just haven't leveraged before. Oh my gosh, we don't need conference call numbers anymore <laughs> because we get on Zoom. That's amazing. So I personally don't feel like I lost anything in terms of collaboration and the ability to connect with humans because we have technologies that allow us to see each other's facial expressions. What we had to get over was the cultural norm of turning our cameras off. And the way that I was able to get over that with my teams was by always keeping mine on. Whether or not they wanted theirs on, I was always showing up for them. And that was the respect that I paid to them. And so to, to make this long story a little bit short, as platforms like this, podcasts, um, uh, presentations we get to give in communities practice in the federal government, things like that, as platforms like this allow us to share our message or to share conversations that, uh, that spark other creativity and ignite fires around the place, those people then, those Tiger Team people come looking for you, right? And I was able to, through the Department of Interior's Open Opportunities platform, which is where we post our details and rotational assignments, I have three different detailees that are part-time from three different bureaus of the 10 bureaus under Department of the Interior, working with me on different aspects where their strengths contribute to the overall vision. But I can't do that all myself. And so when we're talking about... Um, our ability to leverage people's strengths, it's not so much tied to technology as it is culture. We just need to share that information and expect the creativity and input from people that aren't co-located with us. Right. No, that's that's good. And, and, I, and I think everybody is, uh, everybody's been working through it. And I, I do agree, technology's def, uh, definitely a help. Quite honestly, I, I, I was shocked the other day. I, I had a meeting that was it was just a call-in number absolutely was looking for the click to you know join a video conference and it was it was just a you know a conference uh, a conference line i was i was actually kind of shocked after uh, after the time and and you know that it does bring the ability to i think in, in understanding in this in this world is uh, the, the video fatigue right because there is a a level of trying to get you know uh, get things done and, and, and being engaged and, and working through that there is the uh, the video fatigue and so as a you know individually um i, I think people it, it, it is you know it, it does take a little extra effort as well making sure that connection is there yeah i mean video fatigue meeting fatigue <laughs> all, all the same right um, whether it's in person or it's enabled by technology platforms that bring us face to face, it is exhausting, right? Um, but but uh, that's what we do. <laughs> I guess I guess it's just you know um, 
uh, finding that balance between being always on and creating space to be strategic and thoughtful, I think is, is a perennial problem that we had before the pandemic. Um, and, and one that maybe has just been exacerbated because we are more able to be reached because right. everybody's doing the same thing. Um, but like all pendulums, like from cloud first to cloud smart, <laughs> right? We will, we will land, I think, in a good, in a good place because we are thinking about it and we're talking about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you also now have, it is, if you haven't done it in the past, it is a shift in having people in your home regularly, right? <laughs> If you haven't worked from home or you, you, you telecommuted a couple of days a week to working from home every day, it is, a, it is different. Right? You've got that people have to kind of go through that, uh, that change in mentality on their own um, as well. And I, I think those are, those are all pieces of, of kind of lessons learned through this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely those elements of teamwork that are now coming to the culture of the workforce because when we get back to that element of, um, uh, we're all achievers, you know, individual contributors, um, and then and then you bring in the notion of the tiger team. Um, again, I was able to learn from some really amazing mentors in my time about creating that culture of teamwork that allows you to be transparent and problem solve things, um, not just in isolation. But the parable of the blind men and the elephant comes to mind. <laughs> and this is a Dorothy Aronson thing. She's great at storytelling, but. You know, when you when you put that parable into the information technology space and you're trying to troubleshoot things, you're relying on people to share information about the piece that they know so that you could piece together the picture and figure out how to get it done. And when I think about how that applies to cloud, right? Um, when when we were operating our own data sets, data centers and IT infrastructures, and at that time I was also the contracting officer representative for infrastructure and help desk contracts, um, we knew what we had. Right? We knew the servers we had, how many virtual servers we had, the people that were responsible for those could sit around the table in the same room and talk about what might be going on and where the issue might be. And as we moved to cloud and we, uh, we moved that those responsibilities, layers of responsibilities out, we gave up some of the knowledge um, for troubleshooting. And so that again is a cultural shift, sort of a control shift that we <laughs> have to make. Um, but, but these are all things that um, are not distinctly cloud initiative. They, it just happens in real life, right? We have to share information. We have to know our information. We have to know our architecture in order to make good decisions. And so, um, you know, I go back to that that uh, elephant and the blind men parable because if you're not sharing the information, then you're not really getting the whole story, and you think you know the answer. Um, so, as leaders, I think we have to have that space where we expect our teams to. Um, to work as teams, just like you do on the baseball field. Right. So um, good segue into reskilling. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we can spend uh, a lot of time on this, but one of the things that, um, uh, you know, that you've talked about is the, the need to move to a more dynamic approach, right? So, you know, as we look at, uh, again, all these changes, but just individually and, and, and collectively, uh, you know, reskilling and understanding um, the, the the change in speed of technology, right? I think this is what we got into: is technology is moving so fast. You can you can you know 
think about data centers, but the you know the data center of, of, of yesteryear, so to speak, is a little bit even different today, right? Even the uh, the buildings and the way they're managed are are different uh, than than they were in the past, all the way through to development, blockchain, AI, and all of those pieces. And and there is a need, I think, to to kind of uh, understand, but then also have the ability to, to dive deep. And, and I think we uh, we talked a little bit about this or touched on it, but you know, the the need to move to a more dynamic approach was was your your comment. So how are how are you encouraging folks to uh, uh, to kind of adjust uh, that reskilling play? The first step to that, Chris, is that to me, it's not really reskilling; it's just continual learning. And when we change, I think that takes away some of that element of fear that comes with the notion of reskilling. Like, oh my gosh, I have to learn something new. What if I'm not good at it? Okay, um, we're always learning something new. And at home, I've used this example before. When the dishwasher breaks, we Google it first. We look up a YouTube to fix it before we have to call the repairman or buy a new machine. At work, something doesn't work, and we're like, oh, everybody has to stop. Like I have to go take a boot camp for 40 hours and figure out how to do this. And so a lot of the, um, I was fortunate to be able to be involved in the prior administration's reskilling and redeploying efforts because I got to learn a lot about what we were really talking about. And we know the, the literature on this. It says 30% of 60% of jobs are highly automatable. It doesn't say 30% of jobs are completely automatable and it doesn't say 60% of jobs will be replaced by technology. <laughs> it says a lot of us are gonna be impacted by it. So let's get ready for that. And what it does is it doesn't take 30% of our work away. It allows us to get to the 30% of the work that was above 100%, right? And so this is as much a conversation about how we uh, transform the culture of the workforce and uh, what we expect from our employees to continually learn and grow and develop to continue to meet the mission, um, as it is about enabling that, um, meaning how do I start to automate that 30% so that people can get to the next 30% and learn something? And how do I give them a space to um, learn the new thing before they actually have to deploy it? So I'll give you a very specific example that I was talking to one of um, uh, my leaders and mentors about recently. Um, a couple of years ago, I was involved in rolling out a technology implementation, essentially application rationalization. How do we consolidate to a similar system across the department? And you know, we had really great ideas about creating business process efficiencies, and finding centers of excellence and, and getting to this really beautiful space that we all envision, right? Um, and then we had the reality of time. <laughs> so when you throw the reality of time in there, then you have to get to, all right, let's move to one system and then incrementally improve from there, which again is that cultural shift to how we make information technology changes. And we were able to do that really successfully. But if I play this forward and I say, I'm looking forward 10 years from now to what we're capable of when we have a fully data enabled architecture that's cloud-based and accessible and open as appropriate, right, to people, then what I really envision is that we have an environment 
in the technical world, a virtual environment um, that is end-to-end reflective of our business process and IT solutions and the services we deliver to our constituents. If I have that and I know I want to make a change, then what I want to do is copy that environment real quick (laughs) to another one and try the change before I do it. Right. And we do that. And uh, organizations like the Air Force have proven that you can do that to build um, fighter jets. <laughs> like, if they can do it, so can we. So, so um, imagining that future where we have this ability to create uh, clones or what, what the industry would call digital twins of our environment, where we can try these policy changes or we can try these technology changes or business process changes then I can imagine a different way of getting our workforce ready too. Because I say, I think, you know, I think we've landed on this and this is what we want to do. We're going to implement these changes. I want you to try the, try to deliver these services to these clones of our constituents in the virtual environment. And let's work out those kinks before you have to do it in real life. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time when you think about how long it takes to make a snapshot and copy something in today's digital world. Right. It's going to be even faster when we move forward. But in, in the past, we've had to send our people to uh, boot camps and training so that they can understand the next version before they implement the next version and deploy the next version. And, and in the future, we'll be able to just have them log into another environment and try it real quick before they execute it. And that's what cloud and data uh, approaches give us yeah yeah and i think it, it gives you the the i think continuous learning we, we kind of talked to it in, in evolving right you, you have to continue mm-hmm. to evolve right the mere fact that you go to um again this is this is cultural is um and and kind of probably how people learn is the mere fact that you started with uh, google you know we google or we, mm-hmm. we check youtube for uh you know for a solution to solving our dishwasher problem it happens in any right. Just just doing a little research sometimes can give you a lot of information nowadays because mm-hmm. because there is so much information available. And I think the you know the the key there is you know kind of dialing back to the beginning of the, the, the discussion right is the, these 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 small little little uh, uh, you know talk to it in the different side small little wins of oh well that wasn't that hard um, and and I think. Uh, you know, that is, that is a key. So I, I guess, but how do you, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, me, Chris Oglesby is as uh, a guy trying to, you know, got thrown in to learn um, uh, writing stored procedures. I'd never written a stored procedure before. So I didn't get a boot camp. I basically asked the guy next to me, which was the version of a Google, but how do you get people to, to think that way? Right. Cause we're, we're, we're also kind of dealing with, that insecurity of, well, if I ask a question, that means I don't know, and that that goes back to the started to fail. Yeah. First, we need to expect people to think that way. We need to be transparent about our expectations. Um, so if we expect that our employees are spending time each day uh, learning from others or doing research or being involved in professional associations that give them a, a broader lens into what's going on, then they'll do it because we expect it of them. If we expect them to remain competitive uh, in and of their own, 
responsibility. And they have to do that when they get home and they're trying to cook dinner and take the kids to baseball practice. Then we can expect that they're not going to do much of that, right? Because we're, we all have lives. And so I think the first part of it is stating the expectation. And the second part of it is enabling it. Um, so how do we encourage and enable uh, that kind of looking to the future or learning from others as an element of doing your job today? Um, because things are, it's, this is not the industrial age where uh, the way we operate factories or power factories is going to change, but I don't worry. I, I have a couple decades. I can retire and the next generation will do that. We have a couple of days um, things change quickly. So we're not, we, we can't operate in the old workforce culture. We have to operate in today's workforce culture and we can't just expect it and then not provide the mechanisms to do it. All right. Cause then not everybody will be able to take advantage of it. Some will. I was, um, uh, just hanging out with some neighbors recently and we were talking about, you know, how relatively cheap it is to just go take some of those, um, um, major industry platform provided trainings on Python and R and data science and all this stuff now and get yourself ready for a pretty good salary job. And wouldn't that be a smart investment that anybody could make? And I said, yeah, a smart investment that anybody could make if you had $2,000 that you thought was cheap relatively and right. you had the time. And oh, by the way, you had access to internet where you were. Right. And so when you start to think about those downstream implications of who has the opportunity to exercise their ability to can stay continue to stay continually ready or to stay a member of the workforce then you um uh, then you realize that it's not all the same for everyone <laughs> right right um and so as leaders we need to acknowledge that a lot of personally a lot of what has driven my success is my ability to take advantage of learning and development opportunities on the job so that I, and it brought out the best of me in my day-to-day -day operations as well. And it just so happened allowing me to raise kids at the same time. Um, and, and so it's just a different, it's not the world of work my mother grew up in, right? It's right. different. So I, I want to stop real quick and give uh, Fred a quick plug here. He was putting out uh, uh, community of practice um, resources available to, uh, to folks. As you know, we've talked about the DCCOI. Uh, the GSA Cloud Community Practice is also out there. There's, so there's plenty of resources for folks and organizations to, uh, uh, to access. So Fred, thanks for, uh, for putting those out there and uh, uh, just get back, to, uh, get back to this. So I, I wanna kind of tie what you just said, right? So you, you talked about learning on the job and I agree with you right now. Um, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because the government is pushing and kind of kind of play the, you know, the government industry side of things here. And we've talked about um, this previously on the show uh, that there is an, an interest in the certifications, the, uh, you know, the, I'm certified in Python, I'm an Azure on this. But then it gets back to your point earlier too of, of the understanding of the mission and the experience, right? So it's, it's this balance, I, I think, of, um, uh, you know, an organization to have um, you know, the, these, these requirements, but to your point, if the organization isn't really allowing that, how do you, you know, how do you kind of work through what you call this, you know, this test and learn culture if 
really there's you know there's still this kind of old school again i don't know if it's an acquisition play or if it's just an interest versus we need to do x um please tell us what you know what you're going to bring to do x versus we need to do x with these requirements and these certifications and so there, there's a there's there's a you know a, a contradiction that that still exists because um, I think you know industry is trying to bring experience and evolving with you know trying to succeed against that mission. Um, government organizations I think are still struggling with well no but I you know I kind of manage this box but you, you have you know you kind of touched on it and I want to really kind of dig in as as we kind of come to the tail end in this test and learn culture how do you you know, how do you how do you bring those two things together so they're not competing? Well, it's certainly not easy. <laughs> so, okay, well then, never mind. We'll just quit right. we'll the show. <laughs> and, and, I mean, and it's and it's not part of why, as on the government side, you know, I I write statements of work and performance work statements and things like that, and we're constantly balancing the need to just get to the outcome and not have to state how it's done with obtaining proof that the outcome can be achieved, right? Because all of that is a risk. And in today's environment, we have the ability to do more agile contracting. So the risk is a little bit smaller durations of time and smaller portions of work. Um, but you know, back when we started this, okay, performance work statement firm fixed price stuff, and we just wanted the outcomes, um, we were engaging in five or 10 year contracts, right? That's a right. long time to assume the risk and figure out if the person coming to help you was really gonna be capable of helping you. And so to that point, um, ways to evaluate um, uh, ability to perform on the job, right, could naturally fall to education, experience certifications, things like that, because that's some, that's some sort of validator. When we move into the world of lots of dynamic change in doing work in smaller pieces, then I think we can be we can be more comfortable um, taking advantage of an approach of demonstrated uh, proficiency, meaning we can get to a space like the Air Force does, where they've cloned their environment and they allow the vendors to come in and fly before they buy, and and instead of relying on certifications or years with the company or whatever it is, they can say, oh, I like that product you delivered, right. <laughs> And then now I want to take it. And so this is this is something that current technologies will allow us to get to this space where we can rely more on demonstrated ability than on paper certifications. But first, we have to have our data enabled in a way that we can dynamically practice that culture we hope to achieve. And so it is difficult. It's a little bit of the chicken and the egg thing, like we trying to change. Um, and it's from a government perspective, I would say it's it's uncomfortable for me sometimes because we do have to take the risks and we don't know if the person on the other side is really going to be able to deliver. Um, and that's part of our job as program managers in the government to be able to adjust and flex and make changes as needed. Um, so I, again, uh, I think that as our environments shift, as our second industrial age or fourth industrial age or 12th industrial age comes along and changes the environment that we're working in and the technology we're working with, 
then our supporting mechanisms have to change as well. Our supporting mechanisms for acquisitions have to change. Our supporting mechanisms for training and developing our workforce have to change. Um, and, and that's just going to be more and more rapid as we move forward. So I would expect that just as some of the, um, the initiatives in the federal government to rely less on education and certifications and more on demonstrated proficiency and assessments of, of, of a proficiency, that, that that can filter out as well. So you know, it's interesting because I, I think uh, on the on the contracting side, we're starting to see these kind of smaller assessments, uh, you know, that that uh, are again, you know, kind of quicker, quicker uh, return, right? Yeah. The acquisition process, though, sometimes is still longer than the um, you know than than the term of, of what what they're asking, and I don't know, just. To kind of touch, we, we touch on this at, at times, and, and uh, we had um, uh, um, Terry Lee on from uh, from the Navy, and she talked about her use of OTAs, and you know, kind of some successful, some not so much. You know, that is something that um, that I think has been, uh, you know, shown some success on. Hey, let's let's do a little test, right, and and go through this this process, which has a little bit, you know, shorter, more defined kind of acquisition process, do you, do you have thoughts in, in kind of what, because you're obviously sitting a lot of these conversations and- um, Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it takes time for these kinds of innovative ways of, of operating to take hold and to spread across a workforce this size. Um, but I also think that there's an element of responsibility on people like me and the program manager, project manager side to understand what, uh, vehicles or avenues or options you have available and to know to ask for them, right? So if we simply rely on how we've always done it, we're going to keep writing five-year contracts and statements of work and right. take a year to execute the acquisition. And then you're not really sure if you're going to get the budget, right? But if you know to go look for organizations that carry government-wide contracting vehicles or BPAs that you can execute a task order on really quickly for a small piece of work, then you're going to go ask for those and hunt those down. Um, and so it's, it's a, a preparation and un, an understanding of the tools available to you will net a faster outcome in the end, but we have to get used to doing that. Um, and we have to get away from the culture of uh, starting something brand new from scratch for ourselves and instead leveraging what other people have already built um, so that we can jumpstart or, or start from a different starting point, right? right. Um, yeah, because I, I think a different place. I, I think what can happen is, you know, kind of to your point, right? You get you get stuck in these um, these cycles of well, here's what we're looking to do, right? But the acquisition time frame is coming quicker than you've kind of really put together a plan of what you wanted to do. So you mm -hmm. kind of get stuck in a, okay, well, let's just do the same acquisition we did before, and then you buy another five years what you, you may not necessarily be heading towards where you want to go. So then that gets, that gets pushed and you get kind of stuck in this, um, uh, the, this cycle. Uh, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about that um, uh, with, uh, with Brian Whitaker a couple weeks ago was that, you know, bringing those, the, the, the folks to the table, which I think you're kind of saying the mm -hmm. same thing, right? We've got to, you know, organizations have got to kind of come together and triangulate on, on goal. And then how did the, how did those, puzzle pieces fit. Yeah, and, and again, um, if, if these things were less complicated, 
we would have already figured them out. <laughs> we have an appropriations process that incentivizes uh, siloed systems thinking um, that incentivizes uh, uh, multi-year contracts um, that we can uh, fund and make sure that we can continue to deliver services. And we're all learning how to get comfortable with executing a one-year contract or a task order. Um, and then during that one year while you're executing on that thing that you, you had well-defined, defining the next piece and getting ready for that. And again, this is just working in smaller chunks. And as leaders, we need to be okay with working in smaller chunks. And we need to also give our resources the opportunity to work in smaller chunks by um, not expecting A pluses from everything. <laughs> uh, so... I mean, this is just such a, a ripe, ongoing, fun conversation to continue to have and to troubleshoot together as we share information and, and innovate, not simply on the technologies we use, but on how we access and leverage those technologies and allow that to propel us into the future instead of just keep up with it. Yeah, no, that's that's actually a very good, very good point. Which is again why why we a lot of times use, um, and, and I love love the different uh, use of terms is evolve, right? You have to you have to evolve with it. You have to accept it um, and uh, and innovate. So, um, so uh, that I'm going to hit you with kind of the the, the last uh, uh, last question. You you come from kind of the IT management background. You hit kind of the um, you know, the, the CPIC IT governance and, and, and uh, you know, kind of that uh, evolution into uh, kind of the, the workforce. Do you see some of what, because this is obviously the, you know, the, the big thing on the modernization funding that is, uh, uh, you know, kind of been documented. Do you see areas that, that that helps bring those three pieces together? I mean, your experience is, you know, a, a nice trajectory of, somebody that's been there, done that, trying to help others, you know, go forward. So do you yes. think there's opportunities with that funding? Absolutely. I think that um, one of the capabilities that, that things like the Technology Modernization Fund afford us is that ability to uh, make an investment now before we have, you know, the liquid funds available uh, <laughs> from efficiencies because it takes time to get there. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of opportunity in finding something to work on across business functions towards the same vision. So workforce is right in the sweet spot of that, right? We don't deliver mission without people. We don't deliver mission without data. We don't deliver um, mission without infrastructure. We don't deliver it without contracts. And so if we're thinking about how we continue to meet a mission in an ever-evolving world, then what we need to do is be able to understand and analyze and act on those interconnected pieces more quickly. And if we can create a, a, a space, an engine where the data is machine understandable and is able to be queried and is architected in a secure and private way, um, but is also able to be shared and accessed by all the federal government agencies because the foundation of that information is jobs data, right? Um, and mission data, 
then I think that we can get to this space where we really need to bring together the functional areas of IT data officers, human capital officers, learning officers um, in a coordinated modernization effort that allows us to dynamically continue to deliver services to the American public. Um, and it's it's not that's that's like, oh, my gosh, how are we ever going to do that? You have to start with one thing. Right. So you take that big vision and you say, I want to try this in the space of um, federal job requirements and how that helps me understand my current workforce related to what to what I need them to do two years from now, because I've done a strategic workforce plan and how I can source and recruit for a really diverse workforce to meet those needs two years from now. And so you have to take that big vision and say, I can try on this little piece, demonstrate value, ignite the spark, as some other mentors of mine have said, um, and let other people pick it up. That's awesome closing. Thank you. And uh, so thank you, everyone, as we uh, come to a close here. I, uh, Robin, uh, always enjoy chatting with you. And I, I think uh, the fact that we have uh, we have time bound helps us because I think you and I can talk for hours on, on numerous All topics. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you again, Kirsten. Thank you very much. Um, for those that have attended today, thank you. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break uh, as we hit kind of... Uh, summer vacations and uh, hopefully when we're back, uh, Bill will be uh, cleared and uh, really appreciate, um, appreciate everybody's uh, uh, time today.